Good evening. It's good to be in the house of the Lord this evening, and certainly a, a joy to see everyone that made it their choice to be here. Um, I said last night that our sister churches have been such an integral part of our revival this week, and we're so thankful that you made it your choice to come out. Um, it's so uplifting to meet together, and glad you've not just shown up in body, but you've shown up in spirit as well. Uh, it's been the most encouraging part, and we hope you'll um, do that again tonight as the Lord bids you to. Um, I just want to come and play my small part and then get out of the way and let the Lord do the work that He wants to do. And um, you pray to that end uh, for me. If you have a Bible tonight and you want to read along in our Scripture reading, we're going to take two Scripture readings tonight. Um, Our first one is going to be found in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 4. The Gospel of Mark, chapter 4. Our other one will be found in the 126th Psalm. So you can find both of those scriptures, Mark chapter 4 and Psalm 126 is where we'll be reading tonight. And I might say in the way of a preliminary comment to our message, um, for those of you that have not been here, we've had a number of people seeking the Lord this week, both at the altar and back in their pew. And um, it has felt like each night that at any moment one of them would get up and testify of being saved. And uh, there's an eagerness in my heart, a desire to see those things come to pass. And what I've seen in the past is that often when one person makes a profession, it strengthens the faith of those who are seeking. Because often you'll see, like we've had here at Old Union and perhaps at many of the churches, we've had chronic seekers that have come for weeks and months and sometimes even years, and they've sought the Lord. And not only have they sought the Lord, but everyone they've witnessed seek the Lord, they've not seen get saved. And Satan uses that as a tool against them. And they can lack faith and trust that God is not only able, but whether he is even willing to save them or not. And then it seems like sometimes when one of them can testify of God's saving grace, it shows the others that God can and will indeed save. And I say that as I've been thinking the last two days, if God has saved your soul and you've never made a public profession, I wish you would do so. Because it may be the very strain of faith or encouragement that these chronic seekers need to know that God does and will indeed save them. And so as God moves in your heart, I pray that you would be obedient to what the Lord has. I'll I'll say this, that a part of the joy of salvation cannot be enjoyed until you profess it. If you go out and you go on a vacation and it was the greatest vacation you ever went on, what is part of the joy if it is not to come back and sing its praises to everybody else? If you go buy a new car and it's the prettiest looking car that you've ever owned, is not part of the joy in the sharing of it? And yet I would contend that even more so in salvation The joy only grows when you share it. 
And it may be the very thing that these lost people need as words of encouragement to them. And so I, I hope you'll ponder that if, you don't, if you've come to know the Lord and have never made a public profession of that. Felt like sharing that this evening. Book of Mark chapter 4. We'll begin reading in verse 1 and read down to verse 9. This is a, a parable that Jesus taught. And in the middle of the parable, before he explains it, he gives a, a few side comments that have to do with the parable. But I'm going to skip those side comments and, and we'll tell you where we're going here in a moment. Book of Mark chapter 4 verse 1, it says this. And he began again to teach by the seaside. And there was gathered unto him a great multitude so that he entered into a ship and sat in the sea. And the whole multitude was by the sea on the land. And he taught them many things by parables and said unto them in his doctrine, Hearken, behold, there went out a sower to sow. And it came to pass, as he sowed, some fell by the wayside, and the fowls of the air came and devoured it up. Some fell on stony ground, where not much earth, and immediately it sprang up, because it had no depth of earth. But when the sun was up, it was scorched, and because it had no root, it withered away. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no fruit. And other fell on good ground, and did yield fruit that sprang up and increased, and brought forth some thirty, and some sixty, and some a hundred. And he said unto them, He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. Look at verse 14. Jesus is now explaining this parable. The sower soweth the word, and these are they by the wayside where the word is sown. But when they have heard, Satan cometh immediately and taketh away the word that was sown in their hearts. And these are they likewise which are sown on stony ground, who, when they have heard the word, immediately received it with gladness, have no root in themselves, and so endure but for a time. Afterwards, when affliction or persecution arises for the word's sake, immediately they are offended. And these are they which are sown among thorns, such as hear the word, and the cares of this world, and the deceitfulness of riches, and the lusts of other things, entering in, choke the word, and it becometh unfruitful. And these are they which are sown on good ground, such as hear the word and receive it, and bring forth fruit, some thirtyfold, some sixty, and some an hundred. And we'll turn your attention to two short verses in Psalm 126. Verse 5 and 6 says this, They that sow in tears shall reap in joy. He that goeth forth and weepeth, bearing precious seed, shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. And that'll conclude our reading this evening. The title of our message this evening is in the form of a question, and that is this. What is the condition of your heart? What is the condition of your heart? I'll get into the parable here in just a few moments, but I'd like to make a few comments about what we've experienced these last couple nights. And 
reference the 126th Psalm within them. You see, years ago, 2,000 years ago, there was a man who came that we all know about. And his name was Jesus. And he was born of a virgin, perfect. And day after day, year after year, for at least 33 years, he lived a perfect life. And that is incomprehensible for any of us to consider. Not an evil deed, not an evil word, but perhaps even more amazing, not an evil thought ever emanated from his mind. And this man, Jesus, was prophesied about. And the Bible tells us in this same parable, but in the account that Matthew gave, that there are many kings and many prophets who dared to look in and better understand about who that man Jesus was. And yet he was telling his disciples that you are blessed beyond them, just as we sit here tonight, blessed beyond those kings and those wise men and those prophets who eagerly desired to know who was the Messiah, when would he come, and what exactly would he accomplish to save the world. And Jesus came, and he lived the gospel. And it came to the end of his life, and rather than being praised, rather than being hallowed and lifted up, rather than being worshipped for the perfect, compassionate, loving man that he was, who condescended from his place in heaven in order to save a sinful, ungrateful world, instead of being received, he was hated. Jesus did not come to people who ought not to have recognized him. No, the Bible says that he came unto his own, unto his own people who had been told and, and predicted by trustworthy, reliable men who had been sent by God. They had been told, there's a man coming. Here's what he will look like. Here's where he will be born. Here's how he will live. Here's the things that he will do. There was a man that came, and in a moment of weak faith, that great man John the Baptist in prison became weakened in his faith. And he sent word to Jesus, and he said, are you really the one that was to come? And Jesus did not give him words of affirmation, but rather he said, I want you as messengers to go back and tell him what you see me doing. And what that was meant to tell him was that John the Baptist knew what had been prophesied of this great man and who the Messiah would be and how to identify him. And so when they went back and they said, this is what this man is doing and that's what he wanted us to tell you, then John the Baptist could know for certain, yes, that is the one that God has sent to redeem the world. He came into his own people. And they rejected him. They didn't just ignore him. They rejected him. And they ardently strove to silence him. And wasted no sense of humanity in as quickly as possible executing this man in the most barbaric fashion that could ever be imagined, and that is of crucifixion. 
How did that man act while he did that? In one sense, I hate to read about the cross, but in another sense, I love to read about the love of the cross. You know, I love about, one of the many things that I love about Jesus is the details of his compassion. Do you remember his mother there? Oh, his poor mother. 33 years ago, she had been told that your soul is going to be crushed. And there she stood. And not only as his body was being bruised and crushed, there her heart, the young boy that she had raised, the one that she had put her own faith in, to the salvation of her soul, There she stood, no doubt confused at what she witnessed, broken and crushed as her son was brutally murdered. And so Jesus, seeing her, loving her, as a son would any mother, gives the trust to his most beloved friend to take care of his mother. You see, Jesus, up until his very last breath, thought of others. I anticipate having a few more breaths ahead of me, and I struggle to think of other people. And yet Jesus, as Brother Justin preached last night, he told us about two men. What he didn't tell you in in the account that he gave last night is that in one of the other Gospels it tells us both men began blaspheming him. And then at some point, one of those men had a change of heart. And Jesus thought of him. At all points, Jesus was full of compassion until the very end. And then he died. You know, there are occasions where God, and Brother Justin mentioned this, where God allows you to step into the scriptures and through the power of the Spirit, through your own eyes, mind, see and I think sometimes can, I can even feel to some degree what those men felt and the confusion they felt after Jesus was crucified. Peter had told Jesus, Lord, we have forsaken all and followed you. All their aspirations, all of their dreams, all of their desires, they had faithfully for at least two years been full-time followers, but at least those 12 men for all three years had followed him faithfully throughout his ministry at every town that he went into, out of every leper that he healed. The Bible teaches us at the end of the book of John that the books could not contain all the works and words that Jesus did in his life. And those men were firsthand witnesses and believers in him. And yet their belief was incomplete because they misinterpreted exactly who he was and what he came to do in its fullness. And there he died. And imagine the emptiness you would have felt when all that you have done for these last three years and all the hope that you had for what this man would do to change everything you knew about Jerusalem and about Roman society, he believed that God, he was going to change it all. And then he's dead. He's dead. 
like really dead. And they watched him and they saw, no doubt, his body being taken down, lifeless, not breathing, bleeding, as dead or more dead than anyone has ever looked. Jesus looked. And they buried him for a tomb. Oh, and then the greatest trial of their faith, no doubt, the silence. One day passes and it's silent. And they're in the midst of this this celebration. This Passover feast. And then the Bible says, three days later, the earth began to quake. And Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And he was alive. And as he, I think part of the, the, how stunned they were was due to the fact that you have never in your life seen a person look more opposite than when the last time you had seen them. You see, they had seen Jesus' body beaten and bloodied in a way that they had probably never seen any man. The book of Isaiah prophesies and tells us that he would be beaten and bludgeoned, that he would be unrecognizable as a human being, is how beaten Jesus Christ would be. And the next time they saw him, they saw his glorified body. They had never, except for those three that went to the mountain of transfiguration, they had never seen anything like that man before. And the contrast was breathtaking. And Jesus appeared to them multiple times. And he taught them. And the Bible tells us in the book of Acts that for 40 days he taught them things pertaining to the kingdom of God. And then he ascended. That alone, wouldn't that be amazing? Here he's been teaching you. Here he's been eating with you. Here he's been fellowshipping with you and instructing you in his glorified body. And then all of a sudden, he literally begins to rise from the earth. And you begin to watch him go up. And he's higher and higher and higher until you can't see him anymore. And the Bible tells us that they stood there stunned. And two angels appeared to him. And said, why stand ye here gazing? This same Jesus who has gone to heaven shall so come in like manner. Or in other words, he's left. And the same way he's leaving, he's coming back. And right before Jesus leaves there in the book of Acts, as well as in Matthew, the book of uh, chapter 28, verses 18 through 20, he gave him instructions. And he said, while I'm gone... I want you to go, and I want you to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, that if a man will come and humble his heart and repent of his sins and put faith in that man who you've witnessed with your own eyes, whom as the the book of uh, Peter and John tell us, that they had felt him and touched him with their own eyes, and they testified of those things which they surely knew. I said, you go and you testify of those things the ends of the earth until the end of the age. And generation after generation, that's what people have done. 
And the Bible prophesies of this in the book of Psalms, chapter 126, verses 5 and 6. And yet here it tells us and it makes the same comparison that Jesus makes in Matthew 13. It compares the word of the gospel to sowing seed. We don't have a lot of farmers today. We don't have a lot of people who go out and do that as a profession, but that's what it's talking about. It's talking about a man or a woman that would go out and they would sow seed in hopes of producing a harvest that would cause them to be able to live and have the sustenance to eat. But it tells us something about that seed, that we have a message, and it's a precious one. But here's the most important thing I believe that it tells us of this precious seed. It is that we who are sowing it are to do it in a particular fashion. People have lost that today. Preachers have lost that today. It's not just about telling people the gospel. There's more to it than that. There's a manner by which we're supposed to do it. And here in verse 5 it says this, that they should sow in tears. That they should go about bearing precious seed. He that goeth forth and weepeth. Many revivals come and go. And when God's people are unmoved... And when God's people are not, and when preachers are not carrying this precious word of the gospel, and their hearts are in it, and their love is in it, like we've seen these last few nights, oh, what a joy these last few nights have been, because God's people have come into the house of God, and they've carried the gospel the way it has always been intended to carry, and that is with weeping and tears and care and concern. It is as if the only thing these people have cared about all day long is what is taking Taking place tonight. The gospel is not only to be proclaimed, but there's a manner in which to do it. And lost friend, you have witnessed that tonight. Many people in this world go to churches and they hear enough of the gospel, I believe, to be saved. And yet they're deprived of much of its power because they're people that are are preaching it to them and sharing it with them. Know nothing of the great majesty and power of the Holy Spirit. And so they come and they get enough breadcrumbs of truth and they uh, somehow out of a diligent, good grounded heart, they are, they're able through God's Holy Spirit, despite the people who are often trying to deceive them, they find God, but they don't have the joy and the benefits that you and I do. And that is to have the people of God sharing it in such a fashion that it emanates deep in our hearts and we know what those people are saying is true and right. The gospel of Jesus Christ was meant to be shared by human beings to human beings. I don't doubt the power of the Spirit, and yet God knows that the relatable creatures that we are, that there is an intrigue, that there is an additional interest when we see a sinner just like us, broken and sinful, hurting, get up and say, you know what? Inside I was shattered and I was broken and I was sinful and I was reaching out, asking the big questions in life, wanting to know who it was that created me, why am I here, and what is this void in my heart? And when a man man or a woman gets up and they say, this is what happened to me and it fulfilled all the longings of the heart. It has great power in it. It goes a long way. 
encourage us tonight. Let's keep doing that tonight. Let's weep. Let's tarry. Let's pray. Let's sing. Let's move as God's Spirit bids you to. The lost friend, we move from that verse of Scripture in Psalm. You see, those people that carry the gospel, that's what we're called to do. That's what I'm trying to do tonight. That's what Brother Justin has done this week and so many of our brothers and sisters have done. They've bore this precious seed weeping and they've dropped their seeds of the gospel and the application of the gospel, which is also a powerful thing, and that is how the gospel was enlivened in their heart and how it radically changed them when they met the person of Jesus Christ. And so here we come, bearing precious seed. And night after night, we drop a seed, maybe two, and God's Spirit plants it in your heart. But listen, for the full power of the gospel seed to have its effect, it matters the condition of the ground that it lands in. You cannot be a passive participant when the gospel is preached. We said last night, Brother Justin, as he was preaching, thought made me think of the analogy about a person who, if this church was on fire, you could mock the fact that somebody warned you, you could laugh at them and say there's no fire, or you could just sit there and do nothing. And either way, if you don't move, you're going to burn. And that's very much how the gospel is. And Jesus, in this parable, simplifies it to these farmer people, these agricultural people whose livelihoods depended on sowing seed, whose literal life depended on it. And I think very often I've heard preachers try to dissect, so is this particular person he's speaking about saved or lost? And yet I've never seen that in the text. What I see in the text is this, Four different types of people and whether they receive the gospel or not. So he gets to telling us about these four. And the first one he tells us about is like a person who begins to sow seeds on a certain type of ground. And then these animals come along, which if you've ever had a garden, you recognize that's a thing you have to calculate when you plant a garden. And quickly, they steal those seeds and they eat them for food. And Jesus says that this is comparable to when the gospel is sown in the hearts of people, we have a great adversary. And his primary enemy is us. And his primary desire is to the best of his ability, root out the power of the gospel. Because the book of Romans tells us that it's the gospel, it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. And so Satan is acquainted with that. He knows that when the gospel germinates in a good grounded heart, that God will transform that heart, that he will save it, that he will seal it. And forever, both in this life and eternity, there is nothing Satan can do to steal what has taken place in that heart. And so he strives long and he has a legion or he has a great multitude of demonic forces who work in conjunction to his instructions to prevent the gospel from ever getting into the hearts of people. And so the Bible teaches us 
we find that he came in the form of a crafty serpent in the very beginning. The first thing we learn about Satan is that he's very sneaky and crafty. He's later compared to a lion roaming to and fro. Again, pointing to the subtility, the deception, the craftiness and cleverness of this demonic force. He's invisible. And yet the Bible tells us that he can appear as an angel of light. Or in other words, he appears as something right and good and wholesome, something that you would naturally trust. He doesn't come with two horns and a pitchfork announcing his name on your left shoulder. He comes in a crafty fashion. And he's reasonable, you know? At least that's how he sounds. Each time that we find Satan popping his head up and rearing his head in Scripture, is not the things he's saying reasonable? Are not the offers he's making reasonable to the human mind? And what this text tells us is that the gospel is preached. And as the gospel is preached, Satan begins to pray. I have no doubt that demonic forces are eagerly at work in this place. We like to think of them far off, right? Do you know where they show up? Where the gospel is beginning to have its effect. And the last two nights, it's begun having its effect. Why wouldn't he? Why wouldn't they? be here. What does he use? Doubt? Confusion? Distraction? Did you all see that bug that flew over here just a minute ago? It could be something just like that. And he'll aid you as much as possible in order for your heart to be in a condition that the gospel will not do its work. And there's a whole class of people that Jesus just told us in Mark chapter 4 that his schemes are successful on. Isn't that heartbreaking? Listen to me tonight. There are some souls that Satan wins. He wins for a moment. He wins for a lifetime. And then he wins them eternally. Jesus told us about another group of listeners and the condition of people's hearts. And what I want to ask you tonight, if you're lost, I want to put, I want you to answer to yourself which one are you? Which one are you? Answer that before I get done tonight. Which type of listener? What is the condition of your heart? Jesus tells us about another man. This is what he says. 
that this type of person initially receives the message. But listen. Then, when affliction or persecution arises for the word's sake, immediately they are offended. In other words, persecution and affliction, you know, I, I think it can mean certainly outward persecution and affliction, that if we were gathered here tonight and there were a group of people hostile to what we were doing, like some of these men and women faced during their lifetime, and they're saying, listen, if you become a Christian, you've just committed treason. You're going to be put to death. It can certainly mean that, but you know what the original Greek word means is pressure. When pressure comes, then they want no part of the gospel. I think of people who, you know, when I was in college, I, we had a really strong presence of um, Campus Crusade for Life. And we had our own Bible study on campus. And so one afternoon they were in the, a big hall, open area and they were all meeting and there was probably, I don't, I don't remember the number of crowd. It was a substantial crowd. And, and I remember this man got up and he began to talk about the gospel. And I remember he was talking about the rich young ruler. And everything that could hurt about that scripture, he was taken out of it. He made coming to, to Jesus so agreeable to people. And if you get on, you know, we were talking this week about a preacher on TV, Joel Osteen, I'll call him out by name because I think a lot of people have been deceived by him. And he takes all the sting out of the heart of the gospel. But listen, the realities of the gospel are real and we must beware as planters of seed not to take the power of the gospel out of the seed. Because the Bible says that for a seed to produce, it must first die. And if anybody is going to come to Christ and come to know him, listen, you must die to come to live. You can't come to him because it would be advantageous to your friendships with other people. You can't come to him because everything in your life is in good order that you're good at sports and you have good grades or you have a good job and you have a good spouse and beautiful children and the only thing you lack is Jesus. And so I want to add him to my array of good life. You can't come to Jesus for that reason. Rather, what you must be willing to do and the power of the gospel message calls us to abandon all of those things in hopes of finding the pearl of great price. The man had to go and sell all that he had. He could get that one pearl. That's the call of the gospel. Listen, some people hear that and it's offensive to them. It puts pressure on their life. They say, I don't want any part of that. And listen, you can go and pretend you're a Christian and you can go into every fancy hauled church and listen to every slick haired preacher that says all these nice things and makes everything in your life just perfect according to the gospel. But it doesn't change that before you can come to know him, you have to give up all. No matter how hard a person believes a lie, it's still a lie. Our, our, our culture is neglecting to believe that. 
I don't care how you feel about it. I don't care how impassionately the cause has taken it on. And I don't care it's not up to democracy vote. There is one way, and that is God's way. There are some people that the pressure gets put on them. And God calls them to things. We talked this morning about humility. And I told you this morning for you kids that were here that it was a hard thing for me to come forward to the altar and pray because I didn't like the attention. I didn't like people looking at me and I felt pressure. I didn't like it. And so whenever I would get called to pray, I always felt like God was calling me to come to the altar because a part of me, as I stood up to walk in front of those people, a part of me had to die. I don't think it was by chance that I got saved in front of people at an altar. That's just me. I'm not saying everybody has to come that way. Please don't misinterpret me. He tells us about a third person. This third group is America, right here. The gospel goes. It's amazing that in a country and in a time where we have more gospel available, accessible, and understandable to any time in world history, fewer and fewer and fewer people know anything about it. And here's what it says, the seed comes. I had this experience. I remember telling this at one of the revivals I helped here. I had this experience one time planting a garden. My first year planting a garden, it was perfect. The weather cooperated. I went out periodically, and I was able to hoe and get everything cleaned up, the weeds. And I had such an abundant harvest, I was giving food away. We were not prepared to can and store all those things, and it was wonderful. And so I thought I was quite, I was quite the, the farmer. And the second year came. Life got busy. We had a kid, a second kid, helping in revivals. And I began to trust upon my expertise of farming. And those weeds grew up a lot quicker than what I expected. And those storm clouds, they didn't work around my schedule. And every day that I could go out and pull weeds, it would rain. And every day that I, the weather was nice, I was gone. And I remember I kept trying to go out there and I'd get home late at night and I'd I'd try to go out there and pick what I could see, but there came a point of no return where the weeds had covered everything and listen, I could no longer see the plants. They were there. But they were choking, being choked. And they were producing a little bit But before I could get to it, it would often rot. And it definitely wasn't yielding what it was originally able to yield. You know, I believe today, and I said this on Sunday, I think it's a harmful thing for our kids to be so exposed to the world. It's it's bad. The devices, the fun, it's not a good thing. Because let's say that you're faithful and you bring them into the house of God and you expose it to them. Have you not noticed that it seems as though in this generation, it's the same seed. And it's often planted with great power. But kids are seeming like it's being choked. They're not responding. 
I don't know exactly why they're not responding, but what I can say is drastically different than even whenever I was lost and a child is that they're incessantly exposed to stuff and fun and entertainment. So when you tell them about the saving message of the gospel and the peace you can find, these young men say, I can go find peace sitting in front of the TV playing video games with my friends. I can pull up my phone and get on social media and feel good. Why do I need peace? I can drown it out, the discomfort that I feel. And then they come to this age in our culture, 18, 19, sometimes even a little earlier than that, sometimes a little later than that. And you can see kids. You ever seen those kids in church? They were good. They would seek the Lord sometimes. They cared. They had friends in church. You could go approach them as an adult and they would talk to you. And then something happens in them, and their personality changes. And suddenly they're, they're drawing away from their parents, and they're drawing away from other adults in church, and they're avoidant of seeking the Lord, and they seem aloof. Parents, be careful. Be careful as your kids inch closer and closer to that time. Because the book of Ecclesiastes tells us that's when the evil days come. And those things, those comforts of life, those interests in life, take them away. And I bet if I went around in this church, almost every person in this church could name multiple people in their family who have been taken away by these very things. Every person in this church, I bet you could do it. In our culture, it's that third group. And the condition of their heart, though initially receptive to the gospel, becomes disinterested. And listen, no matter how hard they sought on this altar and for how many years they did, if they go out to the end of the world and they never find God, they're going to burn in hell just like a person who never called out to God in prayer. Lost friend, what is the condition of your heart? I'll have you notice, three out of the four are negative. Do you know what that tells me? There are a lot of things going after your soul. But listen, the gospel is being preached tonight. And it tells us about this fourth group. And people in the Lord's churches... I want you to know there are a lot of people in the United States of America that are this fourth group. We get all doomsday and we start feeling sorry for ourselves and we feel like we can't go reach anybody. But listen, there are a lot of people who have good hearts that are seeking after God. And they're asking questions and they're hungry and they've become disillusioned with the fantasies and emptiness that the world has to offer, and they're searching, and very often they end up in one of these mega churches with an artificial seed that begins to grow up, and it gives them things that do not satisfy them, and though they don't know what else to do, so they keep consuming it, God continues to allow the powerful seeds of the gospel to drop in their hearts, and it is our job to continue going forth, bearing pressure 
precious seed, weeping and crying with tears, seeking the good ground that just by God's grace and providence, we would cross this good ground and at the perfect moment in their lives, drop it in their hearts that they could come to know the same God we do. How many people are here tonight that were once lost and deceived, trying to be satisfied with the artificial things that are growing, yet still hungry, still with good grounds, grasping and wanting more? How many people within a five-mile radius of this church, by the end of the night, are going to pray something to God about the pain in their heart that He would help and satisfy it? I'll contend I believe there are some within a five-mile radius of this church, going to do that, if not tonight, by the end of this week. And where are we? we got to go get them. But tonight, we have you, lost friend. And we bore precious seeds. And I pray that the brothers and sisters tonight will continue to bear precious seed this evening. But the question remains, what is the condition of your heart? There are people we find in the scriptures and the gospel comes and they're radically opposed to it. They don't want anything to do with it and they're mad. Those are the men that crucified Jesus. There are some that can be peer pressured out of believing. Many of the people who cried out crucify him fall into that group. There are some, like we mentioned last night in Acts 17 and all through the book of Acts, who hear it, ask questions and say, come back in a more convenient season. Or you've almost persuaded me to be a Christian. Or let me think a little longer and consider this. All type of responses. And then we find some people who the very message that Jesus and Paul and those people in the early church are preaching are the very thing they have been hungering and thirsting for for so long. And they hear it and they cry out and they say, I want more. I need it. I want it. I'm eager to get to you. I think of Zacchaeus there, a sinful man who had apparently wronged many people. And Jesus calls him and he is eager to come down and to come to him. He wanted to know who is this man passing by. And so he climbs up this tree, eager to know who he was and to get a glimpse of this man, Jesus Christ. He was an eager seeker. And when we hear stories from these old timers as we did last night and in previous days of altars like this being filled and windows being opened and people coming out and listening from this very church to the gospel outside of these windows, and 10 and 20 and 30 and 40 and 50 people seeking after God. The difference is that those people at that time had when the gospel was preached a condition of heart that was receptive and responsive to the gospel. I don't think it was always. Sometimes, church, we take way too much blame on ourselves, and we have plenty to bear, but sometimes it's the heart of lost people have hardened The condition of your heart. How is it tonight? My mother, I've told this just a few weeks ago, in the back seat of the church in Bratton Town in Lafayette, Tennessee, 11 years old. The gospel was preached. It was done. The altar call came. And she ran down the altar. And as she was running, God saved her. Because he saw 
All I want above all else, Lord, is you. I told you of my sister just a few weeks ago out in Missouri at a youth weekend, 14 years old. Girls at that age, you know, they start caring about their parents and what other boys think and so many things to cause her not to do this. But it came to the point where Friday night, Saturday morning, Saturday night, she, couldn't, she didn't find the Lord. And finally, Sunday morning, there she was with her hands up in the air, looking up to the heavens, calling out in front of all these strangers, God, please save me. She had a condition of heart that desired the gospel. We had a man... And I'm going to close. We had a man named Roger Elliman. He was a pretty bad, pretty bad guy. He had a devil tattooed on his forearm real big. Some of the stories he'd tell me, you just wouldn't believe how bad of a guy he was. How mean. Tempted to say evil. He said he couldn't think of many sentences in his life where he didn't use the F word. God began to prick his heart. He was in his late 50s. Kids were out of the house. And this kid from this church, not even a quarter mile from where he's at, come and put a flyer in his mailbox. And it was one of those, at the very end, you just read this prayer and you accept Christ and he said, you know, I open it up. And for the first time in a very long time, I began to think, what would happen if I die? And he said, the conclusion was very simple to me. If what common sense tells you, which common sense is wrong here, but if what common sense tells you is that a good person goes to heaven, I'm not going to make it. So he said, I didn't know what to do. So I went over to this church. That this, these kids just come put a mailbox flyer in it. You know, that church, they were deceiving people. And not only that, but their pastor had gotten caught up in a, a scandal. And the first Sunday that they show up, the pastor admits publicly the scandal and the sin. And he said, you know, I walked away. And he said, I don't know where the thought came from. But I thought, well, maybe I wasn't here to hear this guy. Maybe I'm supposed to hear the next guy. That was the Lord. And so, at the same time, I'm 19 years old. I've been preaching for a good 10 seconds. And I grew up in this town. For my whole life, for 30 minutes, we had to drive going to church back and forth. Nowhere within a 20-mile radius was any sound church that we knew of. I remember randomly one day, I remember exactly where I was driving. I got a phone call. I didn't recognize the number, and I am usually don't answer those calls, but for whatever reason, I did. I pick it up, and I remember this guy says, Hi, my name's Kenny Sexton. I'm a deacon at Fairland Baptist Church. And I heard you're a preacher, a Baptist preacher. Are you a Baptist preacher? And I was pretty stunned, and I said, Yeah, I am. Would you come preach at our church? And I just stumbled all over myself. And I said, well, of course. And so the next Sunday, I came with a couple elders from our church, and I preached. And I met Roger for the first time. And the next Sunday, they invited me back. 
And for 16 months, they invited me to come preach Sunday after Sunday. One Sunday, something really peculiar happened. See, Brother Roger and I would stand out in the, in the cold and the hot, and he, and he would say, you know, I feel like whenever I was not too long ago, I felt like something happened, but I'm kind of confused. And he'd go back and forth almost every week. I think I've been saved, and no, I haven't been saved. And, and I would do the best I can, and any, like anybody in that situation, to encourage him. And we'd look at the scriptures, and I, we'd try. And one Sunday, I got to church, and I got up and preached that Sunday morning, and the whole time, Roger was just head down. He was just staring straight down. I thought, well, maybe he just had a bad day. And that night, I was driving to church. You know, I never called on Roger to pray the benediction because I didn't know if he was saved or not. And I told him that. I said, Roger, until you know where you stand with the Lord, I don't feel comfortable. And you preachers know, and if you've ever led a service, you know, I don't put much thought into who I call in to dismiss the service. It's something I look around, and if you catch my eye, I got gotcha, you. Right? <laughs> At least that's how it works for me. That's not the way it's supposed to work. Oops. Right? <laughs> and yet that Sunday, that Sunday night, I was driving to church, and as plain as day, the Lord said, call on Roger to pray the benediction. And I laughed out loud. I said, okay. And I drove to church, and all Sunday night, Roger just steered down. And he later came to told me this. He said, the night before, I had gotten down and began to pray. And I had said, Lord, I wanted to know for so long. And I have prayed at the altar in front of these strangers. And he knew that that church was deceiving people before I got there. And he knew a lot of those people didn't believe the right thing. And he was growing frustrated. And he said, that night before, he told me, he said, I was praying and I said, God, if what would glorify you the most is to send me to hell, then Lord, send me to hell. But I want to be saved so bad. He said, God didn't save him. And he couldn't understand. He said, so I finally got frustrated at the Lord. And I said, Lord... I'm going to go one more Sunday. And then Sunday night after service, if you don't speak to me and show me a sign, show me something. And you know what he said to the Lord in prayer? Have Brother Brad call on me to dismiss in prayer. And that Sunday night, as we were closing, I said, Roger, would you dismiss in prayer? And his eyes looked up and he bowed and he said before he uttered a word, God saved him. He said he knew at that moment that God was real and that God had spoke to him. He responded to the gospel. I plead with you tonight, lost friend. Respond to the gospel. Seek until you find him. Ask, knock, beg, beseech, implore, grovel. Do whatever it takes until you find him.
And when you do, you'll come again rejoicing. And then you'll start bearing some 30, some 60, and some 100-fold. That's one of the wonderful things about being saved. When you get in the lifeboat, you can help other people. When you grow a garden, you can feed yourself, and you can feed other people. You can relate to them. You can sympathize with them. One of the most beautiful signs that somebody has been saved, I've seen it so often in young people when they get saved, they're begging God to save them. God saves them. What do they start doing immediately? They get right now next to their friend, and they begin to call out to God. And if that's not the fruits of repentance, I don't know what is. Lost friend, what is the condition of your heart? I hope it's one that you'll seek him. Sister Ashley, get for us a song. If you're lost and you need to seek the Lord, I beg of you to do it tonight.